And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The race is on, and Lewis Hamilton won a madcap Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, but only after several on-track scrapes with title rival Max Verstappen, as the championship battle was again engulfed in controversy. The upshot is the pair head to the season finale level on points after a weekend on which the advantage swung one way, then the other. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to unravel one of the most remarkable races of the year are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, that was quite something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was thrilling, um, a bit scary in parts, and controversial, and um, yeah, it's all ramping up, and uh, couldn't really have it any more dramatic, could we, going into the final? Yep, level on points, that's exactly the scenario I've been hoping for all season, and Scott Mitchell, you're enjoying the unusual circumstances, not only are you pointing in a slightly different direction to the rest of us, but this is the first time all three of us have been in the same place for a podcast since the Australian Grand Prix that wasn't. Yeah, look what happened then. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Hopefully we um, managed to you know, keep the world intact um, this time. Although, obviously, as we're doing this, there um, there is some ongoing uh, COVID complica- complications going on. So maybe we're starting it all over again. The, f- the presence of us, uh, us three all together in the same room recording a podcast at a Grand Prix is apparently now one of the signs of the apocalypse. So- as is the fact the hotel, as you were just explaining, is trying to force feed you someone else's dry cleaning. Force feed is a weird way of putting it. But yeah, every time I... Uh, keep returning to my hotel room there's someone else's dry cleaning hanging on my door i've done my best to tell the people at the reception that it's absolutely not mine but they keep saying the number the my room number's on the ticket so they just keep delivering it back to me that's, that's why they were phoning you at two thirty in the morning the other day yeah they um they've been treating me very nicely in this hotel <laughs> well there's a huge amount to talk about so let's pile into it Mark, given the way this all played out and the significance for the championship, we've got to work through the controversial incidents between Hamilton and Verstappen. The first dozen or so laps of the race were straightforward enough, with Hamilton leading from Bottas and Verstappen. Then we had the red flag for Mick Schumacher's crash at turn 22. Given Mercedes had brought both drivers in for the pit stop, Verstappen stayed out, so he took the restart from pole with a free tyre change. So talk us through the first standing restart. Yeah, I'm just been trying to unscramble my brain to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Yeah, the first standing restart was the one where um, Max was on pole because he'd stayed out and two Mercs had come in, but Lewis beat him off the line. Lewis was just faster off the line, um, but Max decided to just hang on around the outside and use the sort of the, the escape road apron with all, all four wheels on there um, to just uh, retake retake the lead. 
and uh, rejoin in a way that forced uh, Hamilton to turn left on a right-hander just to avoid contact. And that's, you know, you could see Verstappen's moves were um, very much those of someone who could more afford contact with his um, his points gap than, than Lewis could. And then Lewis was uh, obviously having to take care to uh, to avoid contact at all costs. So that, yes, that uh, as he turned left to avoid contact with uh, Verstappen, so Ocon was able to climb up into second. Uh, Ocon, another one who hadn't stopped and had thus been um, boosted up, up the grid a bit. Uh, so, yes, that was the first uh, restart. <laughs> yes, it's, it's difficult to keep track of them, actually. But, of course, this was considered not to be an acceptable overtake from uh, from Verstappen because of course he did go off the track do you think that's fair Scott and what did you make of what happened under the red flag when there was this sort of horse trading with Michael Massey the race director about where Verstappen starts I love that this is so complicated that we're literally just jumping from red flag to red flag without having to explain what the second red flag was caused by because we'll, we'll get to that later that's a that's a whole other point of conversation um yeah I think um basically it became very clear that what Max had done to um well I was gonna say retain the lead but it was basically regain it because Lewis had got got ahead into turn one um wasn't okay because when we were under uh, red flag conditions again immediately it became clear that there was a bit of confusion over who exactly would start from pole whether Verstappen would because he was basically given the or Red Bull were given the option by the race director Michael Massey um to uh, forfeit a position but even that that's just sounds silly in itself but even that wasn't complicated because initially Michael got the positions wrong he thought that that would put Verstappen back to second behind Hamilton because he'd obviously not even not realized or forgotten in in haste that Ocon had snuck through when um, Max put push Lewis wide so that complicated it because there were two factors there that complicated it one was that if that race had continued as is um, the the norm in that situation there would have been the option for the driver who had committed the transgression to give the place back that's the complicating factor number one it was a red flag there wasn't the option to do that second complicating factor another car had got in between Verstappen and Hamilton so that made it particularly difficult to 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 deal with so you had this situation under a red flag where the race directors in conversation with the teams and basically saying well couldn't really give the place back in uh, on track so how about you drop two positions on the restart grid? And I, I actually think that's fine. It's kind of it, it works in lieu of the real situation. It's just so so weird to have it because I, I've never seen it done that way. But it was weird because I can't remember the exact terminology Massey used. But he basically just says like this: "This is what I'll, this is the deal I'll offer you, basically." And it was just we all knew what he meant, but hearing it over the radio was just yeah. odd. So you just- it, it sounded it sounded like it was. Um- uh, a sort of negotiation, didn't it? And it really it wasn't. He used he was ill advised to use the word offer there. What he meant was, you can either take that or I report to the stewards and they'll deal with it by putting a time penalty on you. You choose. That's what he was saying. It was an offer in that sense, but it wasn't an offer of will you accept a penalty or not. They were getting the penalty regardless. It was just which penalty it was going to be. Yeah, it wasn't basically. It's It just it, it gave it that air of, hey, Red Bull, do you fancy picking your penalty for this infringement? And, and they go, actually, no, we won't have a punishment this time. So it was, it was an odd situation, but it got resolved in the way that then Red Bull clearly expected a penalty to, to come if it went to the stewards. And they thought, well, actually, we've got a chance here to, to attack on a full restart. So then you had a situation whereby um, all of a sudden, 
Esteban Ocon finds himself on pole position at, at a Grand Prix, um, having had a very, very fortunate sequence of events and un- unravel. And then that meant, obviously, he had uh, Lewis on, on the front row and then Max in, in third. Yeah, and as always, we've got questions from the Race Members Club members. Mike Meredith did say, how can the race director get into negotiations with teams? Like, this wouldn't it be better and fair if the teams were told what the penalty was? We sort of covered this, and I, I think there's certainly things we can question about the way this race was handled. But I think that one, just the unusual position, it was just a, a normal discussion that would happen in a race about handing back a place, but it happened under a red flag, so it just seemed a little bit uh, odd. So I don't have a big problem with that. But let's get on to that second standing restart, Scott, if we can keep track. So we had Ocon on pole from Hamilton and Verstappen, and we should say that this second restart was necessitated by Perez's crash after he clashed with Leclerc. We'll talk a bit more about that later. This is when it got really controversial, wasn't it? Because then we had three into one at the first corner with Max on the inside. Yes, I've caught up now. While you were doing that, I was in my head just going, "What? which one was this? Um, yeah, Again, um, Lewis makes a good start, uh, better than the guy. Um, he's he's racing into turn one, so he's getting along, alongside Ocon. And I don't want to do Lewis a disservice, but I wonder if he sort of maybe misjudged the person who was on th- who was third on the grid because Lewis sort of like he was getting the job done on Ocon and he was in the middle of the track and it was almost like that was his focus and he left a great big Max Verstappen sized gap on the inside what do you think Max Verstappen did with that Max Verstappen sized gap he threw his because uh, he was on the uh, that was the like he was on the mediums wasn't he so he'd got a, a good launch from third he had the grip so he he barreled into turn one on the inside but I know that I know that when Max is all or nothing, no compromise in these situations, he does that style does irritate people. But in that situation, he judged it just about right in terms of he was able to keep his car on track going through the corners. So it wasn't like he flew into the runoff, but he absolutely put the onus on Hamilton and um, well, put the onus on Hamilton to avoid a crash. I was going to say and Ocon. Ocon didn't have a say in the matter. The poor guy was the third car in this uh, in this in this threesome going into 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 the first corner. So um, Lewis is obviously sort of checked up. I think you can even see on his onboard like the, there is just genuine surprise that the red ball suddenly appears on, on on the left. So I thought that was very very aggressive, but just about within the realms of acceptability from from Max. It was just extremely extremely hard driving, and then Lewis got very lucky he was rewarded for his um his patience in in backing out in that situation because he got pincered and he could so easily have lost the front wing or or even worse maybe broken a bro- broken the suspension arm or, or something like that because um Ocon gave him a pretty big whack on the the, the front right of the car um he just about lived to, to to fight another day but it was one of those situations where yeah I think to go back to what Mark said a little while ago Max's attitude into that corner is very much kind of doesn't really matter if I come out of this this corner as long as um, Lewis doesn't. I'm not saying he did it to take Lewis out, but I just think he he had that attitude where he's more carefree going into it. He had less to lose ultimately. Yarkon said after the race he knew that those two would be aggressive with each other, but he said I didn't expect them to be that aggressive with me as well. So he was like sort of minding his own business, trying to hang on around the outside, expecting them not to be too uh, too aggressive with him. And then he ended up he basically drove over the outboard end of Hamilton's front wing and you know, properly pushed it down to the ground. And yeah, surprised that uh, the, the front wing uh, got away with that. But yeah, I'd agree with you, Scott, that I think Verstappen was fine on on that restart. Yes, it was aggressive, but perfectly legitimate to be there. The first restart was a little bit more. Uh, questionable I think it was right you had to hand back the place but 
Mark, we're going to keep escalating the uh, the controversy. We've got through the triple salvo of starts uh, early on. I guess the really key flashpoint, <laughs> one of the, they're all key flashpoints really, but the start of lap 37, Hamilton attacked Verstappen on the DRS, on the outside approaching turn one. So talk us through what happened there and its implications. Yeah, so um, Max gets a big slide and basically just stays where he is and forces Lewis off the track. And, um, yeah, that's sort of set in motion the, um, the, 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 the further discussion with Michael Massey, which is coming, which is, um, did he, uh, did he re- have an advantage by going off the track? It was basically a, um, slow speed corner version of, uh, turn four at Interlagos, wasn't it? Where Max has carried too much speed in on the inside, desperately trying to hold on to the position. And unlike in Interlagos, he has tried to turn and make the corner and he has had a massive swap and uh, and just slid basically completely uh, completely off. So it was, um, it was funny afterwards because uh, Max's defence of what happened there was, well, we both ended up um, like past the white line, so I don't really understand why I was the one that got uh, into trouble with that. He was sort of, that was his blanket defence for everything that happened in the first half of the race. It was like... I think only one of you really went sideways into the corner. So I think that was one where Max was... Again, it goes back to what we were saying about the the restart where he was very aggressive on the inside. If you keep it within the white lines and you can pretty much not do what you want, but you're at least you've got a, a good leg to stand on. But in that situation, Max has kept the lead basically by, by flying off. So he'd uh, made a rod for his own back. Yeah, very much so. It was funny in the post-race press conference... Verstappen was talking about this and he said, oh, I don't see why I'm just the one who gets penalised because we both went off. And I sort of saw Hamilton, because they, they they had hand mics for this one. You could sort of see him sort of, his hands sort of moving on the mic like he wanted to kind of jump in and say, well, you pushed me off. I, that's the reason why I went off the track. But because Verstappen talked a little bit longer, I think Lewis kind of thought, I best not wade in on this and uh, let the facts speak for themselves. But uh, yeah, I think it's very, very difficult to say that wasn't Verstappen just going too deep and, and uh, forcing them both off. And in the end, Verstappen actually went much, much further off because uh, Hamilton backed out of it. So the really significant thing about this, Scott, was that Verstappen was then ordered to let Hamilton pass. So this was another race director intervention. It was, a uh, this will go to the stewards if you don't redress it. So then Verstappen's going to let Hamilton pass. What could go wrong, Scott? Well, I'll tell you what could go wrong, Ed. Um, there could be a... I think we could generously term an, a miscommunication between the, between the two drivers, where basically um, Mercedes had been informed that um, Max would basically be told you've got to let the place, but I don't think they'd relayed that message to. to, to I think that they'd been told, but only as Hamilton was virtually on top of Verstappen, they were just being told at that moment of Verstappen, so they didn't have time to relay it to yeah to Lewis. So 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 Max is in a position where he's been told specifically strategically to hand the place back, which is why he was doing it at that point of the track. It's at the end of the um, the final DRS zone on the way down to the final corner, but crucially just before the DRS detection point to give you DRS for the for the front uh, for the main straight. So what Max was trying to do was let Lewis by so that he could then be right up close behind him into the final corner but crucially have been behind him for the DRS detection point then he'd have a lovely toe DRS and he'd blast past Lewis again into turn one that's what Max was trying to do he's trying to be very clever with it but unfortunately in that situation the miscommunication was that you had the guy in front knew what he was trying to do but the guy behind not knowing he was slowing down to be let past so I think Lewis was slightly confused and then 
Lewis is obviously then trying to work out what to do. Max at this point has been a little bit, um, yeah, he's not necessarily handling it in the best way. It's a slightly clumsy way of trying to um, carry out this sort of kind of, it, there's almost like an art to the way you let go. I think um, was it Signs did it really well to Ricardo, I think, in, in Austin. Just that's, you know, you, if you get it right, it's brilliant, but it's so easy to get it wrong. And basically, just as Hamilton, I think, has decided, okay, I think I know what's going on here. And he goes to jink left and then boot the throttle to get past. Um, that's at a point where Max has done a really big break. I think it was described by the stewards as um, uh, sudden and significant. It was quite a lot of brake pressure. I think it resulted in like a 2.4 G deceleration. And uh, the stewards said it was erratic. So basically you have this sort of double whammy there where I think Hamilton's jumping on the throttle to go past on the left just as Max is jumping on the brake, which is why Lewis thought he was being brake tested. I don't think it was a brake test. I think that's slightly unfair. I think it looked worse on Max than than it was, but it was certainly at best a mishandling of the situation from, from Verstappen. And then you have this much bigger burst of contact between the two of them and just... I think my main takeaway from it was, yeah, this, this was bad from Max and he's rightly been given a penalty for it in the end. But my main thing was, how the hell has Hamilton's car survived this without any damage? Like, surely that's race over. Max has won at this point. Well, that's the same front wing that's already taken one hit. And then there's another pretty big hit there. And you saw bits flying everywhere. It didn't even occur to me that it was a question of, will that have survived? It's like, right, well, he's going to be in the pits for a new front wing. So... An amazing piece of good fortune there for Hamilton. I, I bet when the team told him, our data says this is held up, he was probably astonished. Mm. And on the following lap, the next flying lap, he set the fastest lap of the race so far up to that point. So, you know, it was, it was pretty remarkable, really. And there were, there were bits flying off that end plate um, pretty much consistently for the rest of the race. Just little bits every now and again you'd see fly up into the air. And of course, Verstappen did get a 10-second penalty for that. It didn't make any difference to his finishing position, but that was considered to be uh, erratic braking, and, and you can kind of see why. It was It was funny because Hamilton did say after the race that he was thinking of Spa 2008 when when he did the... Uh, he felt he'd been forced off by Raikkonen, but he let Raikkonen past, back past him, having passed him off the track, and then re-passed him into the source. And then, of course, Hamilton won the race on track, but was dropped to third with a post-race time penalty quite some hours after the uh, after the race finished. So Hamilton confirmed he had that uh, that in mind. So there was still more to come in this because obviously Verstappen took off again when Hamilton hit him. Verstappen then seemed to let well did let Hamilton pass, then immediately repassed him into uh, into the last corner. Then he got given a five second penalty because I think they got fed up of how long it was taking him to let uh, let Hamilton pass. So this was a really bizarre situation, wasn't it? Yeah, so he got the five-second penalty for having um, gained an advantage by going off the track earlier on. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I think the thinking was at first that they, they were thinking, okay, well, if we don't give the place back, the usual penalty for this is five seconds, so should we try and get more than five seconds gap? And then he pushed for a a lap or so I realized that wasn't going to happen because the tires were pretty much having started on the mediums and Lewis on the hards, the tires were pretty much uh, past the best. It was the left front that was really giving up. So the realizing that that five second gap wasn't going to happen, that's when they decided, okay, well, we'd, we'd, we'd better um, hand the place back. Yeah, it did eventually happen. And 
Hamilton did eventually win the race. There's a question from James Harvey from the race members club, Scott, saying after trying to give Lewis the position back, only for Lewis to run into him, why did Max then have to give the place back again and and have the penalty? I mean, honestly, I don't know why both those things happened. I can only assume it was just like a bit of ill timing, basically, in terms of finally ceding to the request. And then uh, I guess at the same time or around that time, the stewards have gone, well, this has taken too long. Because ultimately, the, the, the that first attempt to let Hamilton pass was obviously never going to count. He never actually gave the position back. So that, that was never going to um, offset the five-second penalty. I don't know. Is there is there a specific reason why both things happened? What, was it just a bit of bad timing for Verstappen? I suspect it was a little bit of that. And obviously, the first part of it is the principle of if you try to give a place back, and then they have the collision. You can't then let say that attempt to do it is enough because then it just encourages trying to give it back in a certain way that might cause some problems. So clearly that that was why it didn't eradicate it. And then I just think it did come down to right. We've just got to sort this out. We'll have the, we'll have the, the penalty to make sure it's, it's in place. So of course this whole thing's very very confusing because you had the attempt to let Hamilton pass, which resulted in the collision. Then he did let Hamilton pass. Then instantly repassed him. Then he did have to let Hamilton pass properly and not instantly repass him. Then he got the five second penalty anyway. So I think the lesson here is, uh, yeah, if you're going to let someone better pass, do it a little bit more <laughs> quickly and clearly. I think the lesson here is don't go off track uh, <laughs> in the first place. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We, we could have avoided all of this if Max was just capable of keeping his car between the white lines. The upshot of all of this is actually for the championship. It, it's the perfect result, isn't it? Because they're now level on points. Verstappen is ahead on count back to number of race wins, so he does have that slender advantage. It sets up that winner-takes-all finale. But Mark, when you look at this whole collection of things that happen, and we should also say the fact that Verstappen 99% had pole position, but he just made that mistake at the last corner while he was well up. He would certainly have taken pole. Tiny mistake on the limit. It, It can happen. But what do we learn about the title contenders in terms of this whole some of all the things we've we've discussed this insistence of max to not change the way he approaches everything on full attack i mean it's worked from throughout his career but in this case it definitely worked against him this weekend because he could have i mean he okay you can't know for certain that the guy ahead of you on the, on the, on track isn't going to improved by more than you've improved but he had three tenths he was three tenths up at that point he's at the final corner do you risk all at the final corner to try and make it a bit more just in case max does without even he wouldn't even question and usually that. usually it works yeah um but on this you know so that that would have been a comfortable pull position and from a comfortable pull position you'd assume he could have kept he could have kept the lead probably and won this race and gone with a fairly impregnable points lead into the uh, into the finale so yeah, it been disaster territory for the last race to not win the championship yeah the, yeah exactly so it, 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 you know it, it all goes back to to that moment really at the at the end of the, the last corner of the of the last lap of qualifying um and it really okay he might still win it but <laughs> he's, made, he's made it very very difficult for himself and that's it's difficult to criticise someone for a consistent approach, and that's there's no ambiguity about how he's going to attack the task. But I don't know sometimes, sometimes you just in in a campaign, and this this is where Lewis is so good now. 
he, he does think of it in, in terms of a campaign. And he'll be hard sometimes, and he'll be ruthless sometimes, um, but not always. He picks his moments. I think as well as the question of sometimes, you wonder what the end game in a specific one was. Actually, I thought the one at the first restart was the most odd one because Hamilton had got ahead of him. When he tried to go around the outside, there was no way that was going to end in anything other than him going off track. And so then, you sort of looked at it and you thought, what What are you going to get out of this? That, what all the could, other ones... What he could sort of, have got out of it would, would have been contact and, and, and neither of them finishing, in which case, that, you know, that's very much advantage for Stappen going into the finale. Yeah, I, I think in those situations, Max literally just sees it as, I, I don't think he, I think he sees it as, I've got nothing to lose here, or I've got less to lose here. Um, I think it's, it's, diff, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to judge um, without knowing exactly how, he is sort of seeing it. We get a, a glimpse of his, he's got such a singular approach to everything, hasn't he? It just, it's so simple to him. You just go out, you rag it, you get the best possible result you can in any given situation, whether it's one lap, whether it's, you know, the start of the race or trying to win that, win that Grand Prix. And you know, it, it's, a fa- it's fascinating to watch. It's super exciting to watch. Um, it puts him in the position to be three, four temps up going into the final corner in qualifying, but it's also exactly the same approach that then puts him in the wall on the exit of that corner. And when he's in battle, I just think what we've seen this year now is it's very clear he won't adjust his approach. It's very clear he doesn't think he needs to. It's very clear he doesn't think he's in the wrong. And I think he also has a Red Bull team around him just telling him he's never in the wrong either, which I, I don't think is helpful in that situation which means we're at a point now where Max is capable of sort of, I think, crossing the line without realising. I just, I genuinely think he has no idea he's crossing the line. I don't think it's a conscious decision of I'm going to be, you know, out of order into this corner. It's just, this is what I do. Um, and yeah, if you're going to make a a crude, simplified verdict as a result of that, I wonder if this year we've seen when Max is absolutely absolutely at his peak. I think Max is maybe fractionally the faster of the two. But I think Lewis is the better driver. And that's not really a surprise in terms of the all-round package. Because, for example, Verstappen in 12 years' time, and he'll be the same age as Hamilton, probably with an enormous number of wins, multiple world championships. I think the 36-year-old Verstappen would deal with today's race in a different way. That's just the nature of things. Just well, you as would the, hope so. Just as the 24-year-old Hamilton wouldn't have had the same race today as the 36-year-old Hamilton. So, it, it, you know, these are these are two drivers at opposite ends of their career, which is the fascinating thing about this balance. And Verstappen's been fantastic this year, and his his all-out attack approach has, has really worked well. So we're talking about really, really fine margins in kind of pressure points and key moments here. But this has actually created a great battle with two slightly different approaches. And the fact that we go to the last race as well with Verstappen having enough of an advantage that if they do both not finish, he's the one who's ahead on count back is, is an interesting one as well. And people often simplify it as it's not about he's trying to cause accidents. Of course he isn't. It's that thing of knowing that if there's a 50-50 and if it all goes wrong, it can play to your advantage or disadvantage. All drivers factor that in, including Hamilton. I think the issue is that we know that Max is aggressive. Or he doesn't like that word. He's a hard racer. Um but I think there are t- there are times where it's just strayed into being unfair, and I think at times in this race, 
there were a couple of incidents where it was just unfair driving. Um, we should say this isn't this hasn't been entirely one sided. You know, Lewis gave as good as he got when he finally got past Max. When Max finally let him pass, he put him he put him straight onto the runoff. Um, he, he he left him absolutely no room and. Uh, there was there was no um, there was no meaningful consequence for that. I'm not sure if he got a did he get a warning, like a black and white flag, or anything like that. It was, no, was borderline, wasn't it? Was it? Told, yeah, they were told that was borderline black and white warning flag, but nothing. Yeah, so he he's done something there where he's basically retaliated, hasn't he? He's gone. Do you know what? This has been taking the mick. I'm going to send a message here, and he's done it in a way where he's probably you know he's probably got a bit lucky that he hasn't had a five second penalty of his own or or something as a result of that. But it's been. It's instigated by Verstappen, isn't it? We, I think Hamilton doesn't like being taken to that place as a driver, but it just shows that he he will he'll give a big back he'll give 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 a big bit back, get his elbows out that that sort of thing. But um, I think it's just yeah, just strayed into being quite bitter on track at the moment. I think you can also say that probably Hamilton, when Verstappen was doing that thing of letting him past and playing the DRS games, he probably would have been better off just going past and then thinking, well, I can argue the toss later if he comes back at me. Because it was the fact that Hamilton sort of got sucked into playing that game that created that collision, which, as you said, incredibly, incredibly lucky. It didn't mean he was in the pits for a new front wing. I'm still astonished that it held up. So, again, we're talking about these two different approaches, all these little decisions, and because it's down to the last couple of races, uh, everything's heightened, isn't it? Everything's a pressure decision. Everything can make or break your make your make or break your year. So both of them are going to make sort of mistakes and misjudgments. And it's always, for me, the most important thing is who makes the the kind of best probability decisions for their own chances. And you can actually argue that both drivers had moments in this race where they didn't necessarily play the percentages in 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 that regard. And we're going to go to Abu Dhabi for a winner takes all finale. And of course playing the percentages there might actually not be the thing to do because it is the, the, the end of the road in terms of the, the championships. It's just fantastic, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just really pleased they're going to the finale uh, level on points. I think that's something that just relishing first time since 1974 with Emerson Fittipaldi and Claire Reckon's only two drivers have gone to the last race dead level. So yeah, going to be fantastic to, to see how it all pans out. We'll have lots more on the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix in a moment, but first just wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Rev Motorsports. If you like playing games and being rewarded for doing well, then you'll love this. Rev Racing is a game where you can play and earn an in-game currency, which can be converted into real-life money. Rev is the utility token that serves as the primary currency of purchase, utility and action across all Rev Motorsport blockchain games by Animoca Brands. Rev is designed to enable true digital ownership of game assets, giving players freedom and control over their NFT in-game items across a growing metaverse of racing games. If you're interested in getting involved with Rev Motorsport or Rev Racing, you can head over to OpenSea.io and look up Rev Racing to see all of their NFT cars. If you'd like to find out more, head to RevRacing.com. That's Rev with two Vs, Racing.com. Let's get back to the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. Inevitably, we've got loads of questions about the way race control and the stewards operate. So let's just have a quick look at that in general terms. So Scott, Simon T says that Brazil was a missed opportunity for the FIA to stamp out this poor driving we're now witnessing. If drivers leave space, it makes for better racing. And also Oscar Robledo said, 
is the stewarding model fundamentally broken or do drivers need some lessons in etiquette or do we need the reintroduction of gravel traps is the lack of jeopardy the reason for the aggressive inconsiderate racing that we see so two questions there all about what we're seeing from drivers and whether the stewarding and FIA race directing needs to be different yeah well first of all obviously the um the runoff that's there uh, a lot of these circuits encourages this because we you do tend to see less of that when there is um and we would call it um but you know like like a like a hard deterrent on the outside of the corner whether that's grass gravel or in this case barriers um so i think that does play a part in it um i do think that brazil was a problem because it it, it did set a, a bad precedent and i still think we saw part of that part of that today with um like i said hamilton got away with running Verstappen off track um, at uh, the final corner when he was finally let past. And that, to me, just furthered the murkiness of this situation with what counts as forcing another car off track. Like, when when does that get penalised now? It, 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 it seems to only be if there's grass or gravel on the outside. But we also know why that Brazil thing happened. The stewards didn't want to intervene, did they? They then tried to justify it after the facts. And we said on a previous podcast, this will cause problems. And it's caused problems again, because actually, Verstappen has a point whereby at Interlagos, he got away with it. So he's done it again, and he's not got away with it. So you can understand the inconsistency. Uh, well, yeah, t- sort of. But the, the problem is that the the incidents in this race where the, the Verstappen's been penalised for or punished for have been for going off track and, and, and gaining an advantage, whereas you, you could argue that's certainly what he did in Brazil, but the primary primary thing that he was being looked into for Brazil, wasn't it, was was did he force Lewis off? But but Brazil was absolutely both of those things. He'd forced another car off the track and he himself had gained an advantage by going off track because he took way too much speed into turn four in Brazil. So he it we we've then seen some stuff penalised in in Saudi Arabia with Max um, Max passing Lewis off track and also retaining the lead by going off track. But then we've seen Lewis force Max off track and there'd be no punishment for it. So yeah, we, we are still in a situation where, yeah, I don't know, you you've, drivers can do very, very, very similar things race to race and, and I can't call what the decision is going to be as a result of it. We had another case of this earlier in the weekend with the impeding of, of Mazepin by Hamilton FP3. Now, in general, I, as I've always said, I like people not to be punished for a lot of things. I think you can put that down as one of those things. But historically, those have been punished. We have seen grid penalties for that kind of thing in free practice before. But we sort of ended up with this situation of the stewards saying, oh, well, because of the unusual circumstances and because of the track configuration, this doesn't set a precedent, but we're just going to do a big fine and a reprimand. And you kind of think, well, you've kind of done that just to sort of back out of a decision that previous precedent say you've you've got to do and i kind of feel like if you're going to have this interventionist stewarding thing you've got to stick with it i'd rather they didn't have the excessively interventionist so i'd be i'm happy with that just judging it as an incident not being a penalty but history tells you it should be so that they just tie themselves in in knots over this but mark mike meredith says can the race director role really be done by one person now or does michael massey need more time to grow into the role did he maybe take too much on himself in this race it felt at times like he was sinking as anyone would Oh, it's not an easy job, and uh, I think um, now that we're hearing the, um, the the conversations between the pit wall and Michael Massey, you can hear how much more stress it, it, it is. 
um, you've got all this going on in live time and uh, you, you're being um, lobbied essentially in live time um, by two competing entities um, and trying to make your own your own call. So, no, it's not an easy job at all, but I think introducing a second person into the role would probably make it even more, even, even uh, the outcomes even more uh, difficult to fathom because there would be you know two two people feeding into it. Uh, now it really does need, I think, uh, a simplification of the. Uh, I've said this bef- before on previous podcasts. I, I think it needs a simpli- a whole layers and layers of regulation need to be taken away, not added, and there needs to be uh, somebody in a essentially a referee role and. It, he 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 should be have the power to call it and and that's it there isn't an argument and it's not doesn't have to be consistent it's just what he says so you get rid of that argument then well a great example of the overregulation is um a lot of people were annoyed or baffled why um hamilton wasn't was never investigated for falling more than 10 car lengths away from verstappen before the fi- before the first standing restart and um that comes down to a technicality because on the formation lap before the Grand Prix even begins, it's specifically stated in the sporting regulations that drivers, the intervals between the drivers can never be more than 10 car lengths. But that's not there for a standing restart because that's not considered a formation lap. It's considered a standing it, restart lap. But it's lap. a race lap, so that's why it's not a formation lap. No, Because it, it counts to the race tally. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's but the technicality reason. Yeah, exactly. But it's that is a, what a silly technicality. Like that, if if that is there for a reason as a formation lap, then the then the, the formation for the standing restart should be there. So great example of overregulation in the sense that why you why does that why why is there an another set of slightly different rules for the for the for that if regulation but, creates regulation yeah exactly it's very it's very silly and i think do you know for for this race with massey's performance i thought it was a bit unfair for christian horner to say afterwards that the you know he said the sport missed charlie whiting uh today because obviously i think let's be honest with the experience that Charlie had and the way he knew how to deal with stuff. I mean, you could say that for basically any day that Massey's been in charge of Formula One. And I'm not saying that as a massive bit of disrespect to him or that he's done a terrible job every time he's been called into the role. But it's just Charlie, by definition, would be better at that job because he was doing it for over 20 years. So, of course, you're going to miss his experience. But if you look at the big decisions, I think I think he was I think he badly communicated what he was trying to put across with the whole offer deal rejig the starting order because in principle he was doing I think the right thing and the red flag that really angered Mercedes um that that was valid because they needed to they 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 put it out under a safety car after Schumacher's crash the marshals had, had gone trackside to to assess it and the conclusion was actually that does need a small amount of barrier repair not a huge amount which is why i think the stoppage was what 15 yeah exactly just over a quarter of an hour not very long but it needed to be done you can't can't just leave that there like that so i i, I think that red flag in hindsight was probably justified i don't think he did a terrible job today it's just maybe a little bit clumsy maybe it doesn't come across the 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 right way I would say the wider problem is is less the specific handling of the race, but more the wider context. I feel like some of the things that were happening were the result of what we've seen over the past six months in terms of the way they've sort of changed the way they're interpreting and applying the regs. And we know drivers are annoyed and a little bit confused about what they can and cannot do. 
So I think this is the area where Michael Massey as a race director needs to get it a bit more under control. But he's also got to defend the decisions taken by the stewards as well. So it's a complicated thing. He is not the stewards. That's very, very clear. He can make recommendations. He can bring things to their attention. He can tell teams what he thinks they should do in terms of giving back positions. But he isn't the referee. The stewards are in this uh, in this regard, the, the referee. But I do think this needs to be got a little bit more under control, less interventionists and avoid tying themselves up in knots. Because every time they make a decision or you sort of try and justify not taking action in a situation where you've taken action before, you kind of set another precedent and then it just becomes a, a little bit problematic and confusing. So that played a part in, in this mess and that needs to be got under control, certainly for, for next season. Scott, there were some other drivers in this race and we're not going to go to Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner because he did end up nicking third place by a tenth of a second from Esteban Ocon at the line. Given Mercedes now as a 28-point Constructors' Championship lead over Red Bull, that's job done from him, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it was... Um... I think it was it was decent work in the in the circumstances. Um, probably not quite uh, high quality enough to merit a trip to Valtteri Bottas Appreciation Corner, which is very rarely visited on this podcast because it does tend to warrant more sympathy um, than than appreciation a lot of the time. Um, he he grabbed it at the last gasp, but yeah, it, he was unfortunate, I guess, in the first instance because he was he lost out in that early situation where he's running second behind Hamilton, just sort of keeping her Verstappen at arm's length through that first stint. And with the straight line speed that the Mercedes had and the way the race was playing out, you know, it's impossible to say, but Bottas would obviously have come under pressure from Verstappen, but he'd have had a much easier route to to, to the podium, wouldn't he, if in a, in a normal Grand Prix. He was put on the back foot, had to recover and, and did a did a solid job to do that. Obviously, it took a bit longer to clear Ocon than he'd have hoped, but he, he got the job done at the end. He saved the best till literally the final few metres of the of the race. Yeah, he got Ocon by a tenth of a second. Ocon almost managed to hold him off, but he'd had a few hits earlier in the race, and he said that a, uh, a bit of his floor came off a couple of laps from home, which slowed him down, and then he derated on that charge to the line because he'd used a little bit more energy than perhaps ideal earlier in the lap to try and stay clear so just just lost that that little bit of uh, of power late on which allowed uh, Bottas to, to jump ahead of him but Ocon a good fourth place and that's consolidated the position of Alpine in terms of that fifth place in the Constructors' Championship battle uh, with Alpha Tauri because of course we had uh, Pierre Gasly finishing sixth banking some decent points there. Mark McLaren drivers they ended up on either side of the red flag tyre rule in terms of luck. Ricardo finished fifth thanks to getting the free tyre change. Norris was pretty furious with the regulation after dropping back and having a poor restart on his way to 10th. He got a little bit hindered by the, the Perez crash. And given Norris has suffered with red flags a few times of late, do you have some sympathy with him? Yeah, I do. And uh, his recovery back into the, the points, it, it was um, you know respectable um, given... How far back he'd been? Uh, he'd been shuffled with with by events. So yeah, it it can be just as as you know as simple as a a fifty fifty call on whether you come in or you stay out, and it, it can completely change the complexion of your of your race for nothing to do with merit. Just just what happens around you, really. And that, yeah, that's what it ha- happened. Um, Daniel was on the good side of that, and uh, Lando was on the bad side of it. Norris is on, on such an undeserved, mediocre run of point finishes at the moment. I don't think he's finished higher than ninth in the fi- last five Grand Prix or something like that. 
if you look at his like points tally, it just looks like his season's absolutely tapered off. But he's he's been so much better than that actually suggests. Yeah, the only one you can really give him any blame for was into Lagos when he tried to go around science and then sort of pulled across him and got the the puncher. But he could have had a good result today. He was on course for a good result in Qatar. And into Lagos, had he survived that contact with science, he was on course for a good result. So yeah, it's just been a, a difficult run for him. But Scott, although it was a tricky weekend for Ferrari, Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz ended up seventh and eighth behind Gasly. Leclerc, of course, had that big shunt on Friday. That's pretty much sealed third place in the Constructors' Championship, barring an almost unanswered McLaren 1-2 in Abu Dhabi. I did ask Mattia Bonotto about that after the race, and he didn't preface his answer with, well, we still need to close it out. I think even he knows it's uh, pretty much a done deal now. But uh, yeah, that's probably deserved for Ferrari overall, isn't it? Yeah, I think they've done a good job. I also think that what we've seen over the last season as a whole, but obviously especially the last few races when he started to really tie it together in qualifying, I I think the Alfa Tauri is the third fastest car on on, on the grid. And I just think Ferrari, that combination of um, the upgraded hybrid system, just the fact that they've got both drivers just doing a relentlessly good job. I think, you know, Sainz benefited from, he was one of the guys who stayed out, wasn't he, in that, that, that first situation. So I think he gained a few places there. Um, but he started, was it 15th after his uh, qualifying drama? Um, and I think he'd worked his way into the into the points um, or was putting himself in points contention anyway. Yeah, he just dropped Jeff Nancy when the, the race was uh, safety card for the first time. Yeah, so you just have these two drivers, like Leclerc and Sainz is just fantastic. I, do, I think they are, they they have been the best teammate pairing in F1 this year um and Ferrari have absolutely um enjoyed the dividends from that yeah and obviously you mentioned Alfa Tauri Gasly finished sixth he had one of those races it could have been a little bit better he he lost a couple of places on the first start and one of those was to a mistake he made in turn four that let Ocon get past him but came back through to sixth place so he uh he made some gains having dropped to uh to eighth reached but- a reached a good personal milestone as well in this Grand Prix. Do you know what it is? I do not. What is it? He's hit 100 points for the season, which he says was his pre-season target. He thought, if I can get 100 points this year, we'll have had a good season. And he has done exactly that. Yeah, it's just a shame he hasn't got a few more points to uh, keep AlphaTauri ahead of Alpine. But I think that's absolutely not Pierre Gasly's fault. That's uh, Yuki Tsunoda. We'll get on to him in a minute. But Mark Antonio Giovinazzi had one of his stronger weekends in what might be his penultimate F1 weekend. He held seventh for a while, but was ninth after slipping behind the two Ferraris as good as he could have done? Yeah, I think so. Recently, um, he was uh, doing a good job holding holding down that uh, early seventh, but the two Ferraris were coming at him at quite a rate. I think there was, um, when I was watching, when, when Sainz was attacking him, he was like taking a good second a lap out of him. So you're not going to keep a car behind you, you know, that, for very long with, with that pace difference. So, and there were two of them. So, yeah, um, it, yeah, good good performance. Probably a little bit too little too late. Obviously, he's off to Formula E with Dragon for the, the coming season. But, Scott, let's talk about Sonoda. Good qualifying. He made Q3 on mediums for the first time, but ended up having that collision with Sebastian Vettel, earning a five-second penalty as well as destroying his front wing. 14th place should have been a lot better for him, shouldn't it? Yeah, he's, 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 the Grand Prix are just too scruffy. There's always something going wrong, basically. And it's a shame because he is... He's really come on in terms of um, nailing things in, in, in qualifying. He's still missing a bit compared to Gasly, but you'd expect that. But it's just um, gone of the days where he's you know a potential Q1 victim or a, a lowly Q2 victim or that he 
he he's just languishing behind Gasly all weekend. He's, I think he's on a decent little run at the moment in terms of being comfortable in the car and having that one lap pace. And he he feels that he's now back to his early season Bahrain Imola approach of being able to just go out at the start of qualifying and in his words his approach is to just send it but that doesn't mean he's just going out there and just decided oh well I can't be asked with all this building up my confidence rubbish I'm just going to go out there and just absolutely go for it what he means is that he has taken a step back he's realized he was doing too much too soon he's built a bit of experience he's rebuilt his confidence he's understood the car a little bit better and now he's comfortable going out and leaning on on it properly at the start of qualifying it's not as big a risk or a gamble as it was throughout the season that was causing all these errors so now he's he's got the pace he's got the confidence he he just needs to start executing races properly because yeah that's um he's ultimately the reason Alfa Tauri is has been beaten by Alpine in in the championship this this year and I know he's a rookie and um, you you would expect there to be some issues, but yeah, ultimately he's um, he's still not quite doing a good enough job on Sundays, even though there has been a clear and substantial improvement on Saturdays. And he was quite happy to admit faults for the the clash with Vettel as as well, so he still knows when he's made a mistake. Mark Sebastian Vettel was in the mix, and maybe with a fair wind of Nick to point when he had a collision with Raikkonen, he survived that clash with. Sonoda with just a little bit of time loss. But what do you make of the, the collision with the Alfa Romeo driver? Um, it's, uh, one of those 50-50 stubborn on both sides um, near the near the back and down. And it was like a, yeah, it was like a couple of kids going at it. And uh, <laughs> two of the most experienced guys in the field, two ex-world champions. Um, it was just a little bit scrappy from both of them, I thought. Yeah, probably wouldn't have been points for Vettel though, because Aston Martin was uh, was struggling uh, massively for pace at Jeddah, and I think Raikkonen would have not been able to make up the ground. But yeah, it didn't help either of their races. Now, Scott, there were fears about a big accident in the race. It did happen at that second restart when Perez had the spin after uh, squeezing up against the clerk. It was to, to his left, and Mazepin rear-ended Russell as the field tried to get round it. Uh, got few questions related to this. Oscar Robledo asked for our opinions on the track and the multiple red flags and whether that means the design can be deemed a success. Uh, well, I've been thinking about this. I, I'm not 100% sure because clearly when when you've just got one car on, on its own and the driver is absolutely on the limit, it's a fascinating, fantastic circuit. It's such an unusual experiment. We've, we've got these tracks around the world for, for different categories. Um, it, it got compared pre-weekend to Macau and, and, and Baku, but specifically the high-speed parts of those circuits, whereas this track's pretty much all high-speed. There are only, I think, so is it, there's 27 official corners, but there's actually only six braking events, I think, throughout the lap, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so in that sense, it's spectacular, but I think it was pretty clear as soon as we had cars on track on Friday the drivers realised actually that it was, it was going to be an issue with um, you know visibility and uh, the speed offsets that you have in qualifying because of the way F1 is now in terms of ridiculously slow cooldown laps and, and stuff like this and people backing off to um, to find space before the final corner and, and this sort of stuff. But yeah, the real threat was always going to be if there's a crash... Where, where do you go? Because there's no containment on that circuit. So the cars are going to be bounced back into the racing 
into the racing line. Some of the corners are blind, so you're not going to see if there's a car in the middle of the track until it's too late to do anything about it. So that side of things does worry me. Um, but I guess uh, we'll be back in a few months. I don't know if there's going to be time, if any, to um, make any changes. A couple of drivers have talked about whether or not it's possible to tweak the walls so that there's a little bit more of a view round past the apex in a couple of places. I don't know if that's possible in, in, in the short term, but longer term, there's a very, very good chance we're not going to be at this track longer term anyway. I don't know how many races they actually plan to do, but it might only be two or three before it moves on to a brand new um, venue somewhere else in Saudi Arabia. So it could be a problem that effectively solves itself. And I don't think that's necessarily the best way for a world championship to go racing. Just sort of every time you go back to a specific venue, you just cross your fingers and hope that it's a, it's an easy weekend, but it, it might be one that we we do just have to hope is um, executed sensibly all the while we're here, and then move on to somewhere that's probably just a bit more better balanced because it's an interesting experiment, but it is uh, it is more dangerous than other tracks. And actually, the accident that Mazepin had when he rear-ended Russell, Russell obviously was trying to sort of squeeze past the accident. He'd had to check up, and Mazepin not his fault. He was just unsighted and, and piled into it. Mick Schumacher had basically predicted that sort of thing, that you could have an accident further up the field, an unsighted bat marker comes through, piles into it. Funnily enough, I asked Mazepin about Mick's comments, and Mazepin sort of said, well, this is part of the challenge of this circuit, and you know, we say we don't like car park tracks, so uh, that's just part of the part of the job. <laughs> it was just amusing that it was Mazepin who happened to get uh, get caught out, fortunately, uh, got away with it, even though it was a, a pretty massive, uh, massive hit. But yeah, the thing that was annoying the drivers was the fact that the straights are effectively curvy, so you can't see properly. And they were sort of saying, well, they're straights effectively, so why don't we just make them straight so we can see? And they're a little bit uh, safer, but it would make it obviously less spectacular. Well, Mark, uh, Paul Semnak uh, actually sent this before the uh, the race. Uh, he says, while the F1 race has not started yet, I fear this will be a dark weekend in the history of F1. This is a statement as opposed to a question because I need to express myself, but I don't know where I can. Well, we're letting you express yourself here. He goes on to say, the course in Jeddah is profoundly unsafe and illustrates the greed of the owners in the FAA. The fact that drivers, aside from a few, have prevaricated in their statements for fear of retribution from the FAA shows there's a high degree of apprehension. One doesn't need to look any further than the F2 race. It truly represents the canary in the coal mine. Profoundly unsafe, Mark? Profoundly, no, I wouldn't say so. It needs it needs some tweaks, perhaps. Um, I think uh, it, the, 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 the 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 sweeps in the first part of the lap, which were not quite flat, that do require some driving through. I don't; those ones don't present such a hazard. I don't think it's it's the it's the flat out. They're just kinks with with a, they're just blind kinks in the second and the and third sectors. The ones that the car just treats as a straight. I think, yeah, you, you could probably quite easily open up the visibility of those but uh, whether it be uh, um, deemed to practical to do that by the time we get here in three months time uh, I, I, don't, I doubt very much but yeah I, I think with a little bit of tweaking it could be uh, it could keep it could retain the the, the great qualities um, but uh, make it a bit safe yeah fortunately the race did go off without anything uh, too serious happening. There was that that big accident. I think, obviously, the F2 race, 
There was a lot of interesting because there was the the start crash with uh, Tio Pacher stall and then Enzo Fittipaldi went into the back of him. Uh, Pietro Fittipaldi recently tweeted that uh, Enzo has a fracture in his right heel, but he's awake and alert and, and resting. I don't think it's fair to say that shunt reflects on the circuit personally, that particular shunt. There were other incidents, that, but that shunt could have happened at just about any circuit, couldn't it? Because it's just a, a stalled car. It's a start line shunt, yeah. yeah, the stalled car. Well, I actually saw Jake Hughes, who's obviously raced in F2 a little bit, tweeted that they should have anti-stall on the cars to stop this happening, which Theo Pacher actually agreed with. So, yeah. So I think there are a few question marks about the circuit. I also wouldn't agree that the, the, the drivers haven't been allowed to express themselves. Plenty of them expressed reservations. Sergio Perez was was pretty strong about it on uh, on Saturday uh, night after qualifying. A few other drivers were uh, as well. So, yeah. I think they need to have a bit of a look at it. I, I don't think it's a, a disastrous circuit, but yeah, you, it's that inability to see what's coming and piling into accidents that the drivers are quite rightly worried about rather than the runoff for driving around kind of on your own or in normal uh, racing. And of course, the one thing we can't overlook is the fact that this circuit is in Saudi Arabia, which has caused some controversy. Plenty of talk about that, particularly early in the weekend. Obviously, Lewis Hamilton had his had his pride helmet. Sebastian Vettel uh, had, was had his shoes as well, and Mick Schumacher was another one to to show support. Of course, Sebastian Vettel had his uh, had his women karting event as well. Scott, obviously, this is a highly charged race politically. So, what did you make of it, and the fact that Formula One's come to Saudi Arabia at all? Well, I think um, we talked about it very briefly in in Qatar you know a lot of people are uncomfortable being at these races but you don't have a choice because it's F1 that chooses to 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 be here F1 is not the only championship or major sporting entity that's decided to be at these be in the in these countries and yes obviously we're all probably a little bit complicit in what is often is is so widely accused of sports washing from countries like this one um but we we are here and as we are here i think it is important to try and see it for um ourselves i don't think really you achieve anything by just sort of grumbling um about it and sort of for for lack of a better way of putting it sort of getting on a sort of moral high horse over it and then saying okay well i'm just not going to go because we we've all we we've all had the opportunity to stay at home for this for this first one but it's better to be here because otherwise you're just you're still complicit in reporting on the event you just avoided the inconvenience of actually going so i think um i think having been here i think it was important that lewis and sebastian led by example on on thursday they took very different approaches um lewis called on uh people to you know just learn more about it he was focusing on the um appalling lgbtq plus uh, situation in this country where it is criminal simply to be um homosexual or transgender um, and Sebastian went for the I want to be positive, not negative approach, which is why he engaged with the female carters and he wants to sort of explore that area of social reform and try and encourage that side of things. And it is, that's great because what it would be totally wrong, which is exactly what Seb said, would be for us to come into this country with a Western or European viewpoint and say, oh, this place is absolutely you know, morally bankrupt. We shouldn't be here. These people are savages. I can't believe they behave like this. That would be a totally wrong attitude to take to it. But that doesn't mean that you can't come here and say, look, respect certain things about the culture related but some things don't come down to culture it's about basic human rights which is why if you're going to be in this place which f1 is something that f1 has decided 
you can at least be like Lewis, be like Seb, raise awareness of the stuff that needs awareness to be raised and try and encourage the right kind of sort of attitude and, and behaviour. I don't feel particularly great having been here. I don't feel like I did a particularly huge amount to sort of further that cause necessarily. But I think it's important to at least be open to it. And yeah, just realise that there is more more to the country than the controversies. But ultimately, that was always going to be one of the big focal points for this one. It's very difficult. The world is a, a very complicated place. It would be naive to say that Formula One being here will transform the problematic areas. You just have to hope that there's some gentle positive effect and, and see what happens o- over time. But we'll just have to see. It'll take a few years to have an idea of what effect, if any, Formula One has had. And yeah, I could just echo Lewis Hamilton's argument that you should just try and educate yourself about it. There's plenty of resources where you can read about the realities and what is going on. Amnesty, for example, where you can understand a little bit more the reality. But we'll be moving on from Saudi Arabia now, making our way to Abu Dhabi for the season finale this coming weekend. Thanks very much to Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes for your insight. There's plenty to read on therace.com and don't forget the hyphen from all of us, as well as plenty to watch on our YouTube channel and to listen to from our various podcasts covering MotoGP, Formula E, IndyCar and F1 history through Bring Back V. Tens. We'll be back later in the week to take a look ahead to what should be a gripping title decider with the fact Hamilton and Verstappen are level on points, setting up what everyone wants to see. A true winner-takes-all finale. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.